Hey, it's Cambria from cambriamusic.com. Today I have an awesome interview with Michael Small. He's a musician from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. He was a founding member of the Mellagrove Band and now plays bass in a number of other groups. Stick around and thanks for coming by. Yeah, so thanks for coming by. Oh, uh, you're welcome. Thanks for the invitation. You're just hanging out tonight? Uh, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> the, um, the documentary, how did that come about all those years ago? That was, we played this show in Ontario somewhere and these, um, these students came by. They wanted to interview us for their, for something or other. I don't know what, but it was a video thing. And we had a lot of fun with these guys. <laughs> um, and not long after that, they contacted us again for a, a project um, for, for, I guess, I guess his thesis project or something. He okay. wanted to make a full length documentary about a band and he had so much fun interviewing us. And he liked how we worked on camera, I guess. So he asked if he could just start following us around for a while, like come into our shows, maybe come to a rehearsal or two. It all kind of started just like that. And what he ended up capturing was a year full of bad stuff happening. Like, uh, right. He, he didn't capture all of it because he was supposed to come meet us in the States and shoot a bunch of shows. And while we were down there, our bus broke down in Florida and we were stuck in Orlando for a week. Okay. That's not in the movie, but <laughs> it, it shaped it shaped the movie by preventing a bunch of shots from happening. Um, was, that, was that when you talk about the uh, bus breaking down at that part? Yeah, I remember watching it and feeling like he conflated. We had two bus breakdowns um, okay. during the time that we were on that. And I think that he conflated them both into one story just for the sake of, I mean, when you're making a movie, you see this in biographical movies a lot where like yeah. different people will, will be, um, uh, composited in, into one character and so he comped two breakdowns into one but yeah this was a thing where I mean it's not that exciting to talk about but our transmission basically grinded itself uh, right. apart and because we had this goofy like shuttle bus that wasn't easy to get parts for we were just stuck waiting for things to arrive okay mechanics shop. around what year was that that was December 2010. Okay. Um, yeah, so, I mean, not to dwell on stupid stuff. A, a lot of people go through way worse things than that every day. But, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, the other, that, I don't know, that bus we got was a real lemon. It gave us a lot of trouble. Uh, the other time it broke down, the one that you that is shown in the movie is in Reno, Nevada. Okay. Um, but that was just, like, we leaked whatever the red fluid is in a car. I don't remember, but it was the red <laughs> stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, and in Montreal, we had a belt snap in our engine too. So it was funny. We had to take to a garage where this thing wouldn't even fit all the way in to the garage. Okay. <laughs> um, anyway, we sold it to a soccer team. Okay. <laughs> and I wish, I wish I knew what became of it. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, because in the movie, a lot of bands kind of cite you as an influence. How did that kind of feel watching through that? Uh, kind of weird. Like, 
some of it we already knew because like bands tell each other that kind of stuff <laughs> in person when they can and if you're working a lot you're going to run into a lot of bands like i can remember at the festival where we first met the guys in uh tokyo police club yeah uh also in montreal their keyboardist graham came and sat at our picnic table in the band area and told us like what like an influence we were on them or whatever it's actually funny we we didn't realize i don't know how we figured this out later but when we had myspace yeah. a million years ago the very first comment on our myspace page was teenage graham Wright saying that he was going to have a band and they were going to get huge and let us open for them yeah <laughs> and it came true he's he saw the future anyways he came up to us and said all this stuff and we were like oh that's really nice uh and this was moments after our drummer darcy approached two different members of the flaming lips to do oh, yeah. that exact same thing so it all we, just comes around yeah and you know he gave Darcy actually gave them copies of our records, which I wish he didn't do because he <laughs> jacked so much stuff from the Flaming Lips <laughs> that they I'm sure they didn't listen to them, but if they did, we might be we might be in jail right now. Yeah, it doesn't go too much into the movie, but you're playing personally of the band. What were some of your influences when you got started up? Well, I'm not a formally trained musician in any way. Um I I learned I've only ever played bass and I basically would learn tricks from especially as a teenager just downloading looking up tabs online for songs yeah. I liked to try to figure out like the cool stuff that was happening in them uh I'd say early in my bass playing life a lot of that would have been Paul Simonon who played bass in the Clash right <clears throat> there's Clash there are Clash bass lines completely lit like there there are clash bass lines that i stole wholesale and stuck on Melgrove songs on our very first album that we made as kids yeah uh, i'd say at that age too probably klaus fluoride from the dead kennedys i okay. learned a few tricks from him mike o'neill from the inbreds was an influence but it wasn't really until like two years ago that i started being able to figure out <laughs> his fun uh chords at all at some point, I got really interested in Harvest, the Neil Young record, and I don't actually know the name of the bass player on that, but I found it really, something about it really grabbed me, how whoever, how this bassist was mostly just playing roots only on the kick drum and otherwise staying out completely, and it was creating all this air. So the bass became this like physical presence that would control the volume of the song right and it was right after that that we recorded planets conspire and before that i was one of those bass players who just plays constantly and it really when people do that i'm getting a little nerdy here when no, people, go when for bass it. Players, when, <laughs> i don't know if you're a musician or what but when bass players do that songs have like no dynamics and it 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 really sounds like it's someone who plays guitar and took up bass but they serve really different purposes in a very physical way yeah um and it's that corny line about like the notes you don't play are as important as the notes you play i think that's a jazz saying maybe i really i don't know what the hell i'm talking about but 
uh, with bass, I, I find that not playing is a part of playing because you're you're deciding what the dynamics of a song are. Right. At some point, I kind of got more into McCartney, who definitely did not follow that rule. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, a, a lot of bass line ideas I've had have just come from me walking around with whatever the new song I had to play on stuck in my head and it would just kind of come to me and I'd go home and try to figure out what I was seeing in my head yeah uh, and I would get it super wrong when I would get something uh, and then I would go and record and it would get changed around again just because that's just what happens that's just the, the process yeah you know what I I neglected to mention someone important just because I never think about this guy ever now but I had two kind of favorite bass players as teenagers. Uh, one was a guy named uh, Robert Sledge. He played okay. in the band Ben Folds Five. Another was a guy named Derek Tokar, who led a Toronto band called uh, Radio Blaster. And both of them played a Gibson bass with a Russian big muff distortion pedal. Yeah. And so that got me really into like, really fuzzy bass that you could play on high strings and have it sound almost synthy. Um, and I definitely put that to use on uh, almost every Melgrove record and anywhere else that I could get away with it. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned Paul Simon in there. You ever heard his project it was called The Good, The Bad, and The Queen? Mm, no, I've actually never heard them. Yeah, it's pretty good stuff. It's um, different, but definitely has a British feel. And in around 2007, they played a show in Toronto and they appeared at the edge, all four of them. And it was like mind blowing. Wow. And they just kind of hung out for half an hour. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So and wow. it, was, it was kind of okay. that morning. I bought like a copy of London Calling just so he could sign it. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> um, I, have, I have a white uh, precision bass. And I think I only really have it because of him and maybe D.D. Ramone. <laughs> Did you ever hear D.D. Ramone's rap album? Oh, yeah. D.D. King. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> you just kind of had to do it at the time, I guess. It sounds a lot like um, the never released but leaked uh, Brian Wilson rap song. <laughs> uh, it's got kind of a dark story because it's from the period when his his psychiatrist yeah. took over his life abusively and this guy co-wrote this song it's called smart girls and he also takes a verse from brian oh, wilson God. and it has like awkward samples of beach boys songs in it yeah and so it was sent out on a promotional cassette to radio stations and then whatever the album was supposed to be never came out um but it's leaked online in a few places um I implore you not to listen to it. <laughs> okay, I won't. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you how, should. how years later these things will pop up and then sometimes they comment, sometimes they don't on these things. It's funny because I went to the same high school as you guys, but just graduated a couple of years after, I think. Oh, no way. Yeah, Jay Darcy and I finished in 97. I stuck around one more year for OAC. Did you guys play a lot of uh, high school events then, or when you could? Um, well, we, in a, in a sense, yeah. Um, the way the band formed, 
uh, like I didn't know Jay and Darcy really at all. They were already friends and they had a band. But the way that we started playing together was when we were in grade 12, the band that backed up the school choir all graduated. And then yeah. the teacher, Miss Saboko, if you remember her, she, she was the, who ran the choir. She knew that the three of us were people who played instruments. So she approached us to start to take over. Um, and so Jay Darcy and I were the Father Gates liturgical band before we were the Belgrove band. Okay. Darcy was on drums, Jay was on guitar. I can still remember him telling me, like, because we were working off these charts, uh, like piano chord charts, and I had to ask him, like, which one's C? And he was like, third fret, second string. <laughs> and that was how I found out where C was. So that's how it started. And then when grade 12 ended, the band that they had, um, their bass player was leaving so they asked if i would start uh playing with them amazingly do you know the band fucked up oh yeah for sure so their bass player sandy also went to gates oh really and yeah and and she was one grade below us and she had a punk band at gates called sni but anyway if i said no if i didn't want to play with them or if i couldn't yeah uh, sandy uh they were gonna ask sandy next huh so in a sense, she has me to thank for being fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so when, when school ended, that's how I joined the band. I can still remember that we, we went to a treble charger concert at the Opera House. Okay. And that was, the, that was the first time we hung out. And then we went to see Thrush Hermit and the Super Friends. And I think the local rabbits played that show too. And that was the second time we hung out. But yeah, we, we had similar taste we were all, those guys were super into Weezer at the time. Like, right, right. Like, one of, I think it was Darcy, his graduation, like, comments in the yearbook under philosophy of life. I think it actually said, listen to Weezer. <laughs> uh, um, they were kind of a big band with, like, jocks, but the school, like, guitar nerds hated them. And I remember we tried out, oh, yeah, I was in OAC, the other guys were gone. And I, we tried out for like the school, like it was called Gates Rocks. <laughs> it was just like a band night. And yeah. so we were going to try out for that. Or maybe it was just that end of the year talent show. I don't remember, but I remember signing us up and these dudes who were like hanging out next to the sign up sheet, sizing everybody up. Like one of them kind of turned to the other one and was like, his band, like Weezer. And then they like laughed and they're like, but they suck. Oh, wow. <laughs> It's hilarious. But those guys were really into, um, they would like sit in the calf and play Lightning Crashes by live all the time. So okay. I kind of feel like we win. <laughs> uh, side note, I played the same festival as live this past summer. Really? Where was that? Uh, it was up in Ottawa, uh, Ottawa Blues Fest. Uh, I've, I, I've become a freelance bass player for hire and um, an artist I play with, uh, brought me up there was that this oh no it was last fall yeah it was fall just thinking of the timeline of my life here i i got married in august oh, and nice. like the the day before or two days before do you know rich o'coin the east coast singer yeah yeah okay he uh 
he sent me a message asking if I would play a bunch of shows with them starting in Ottawa in like two weeks. And I was kind of like, well, uh, I don't have time to learn your songs till like next week. I was out on Cape Breton Island too. So I was just like, I, yes, but I can't think about this right now. And anyway, um, uh, I'm going, I'm going off on a hundred tangents on you here. Sorry about that. But no, uh, how am I trying to tie all this together? Oh yeah. So my first show with Rich was at Ottawa something festival. Oh, folk. It's called city folk now. Ottawa city folk. And we were on the, we were in this like arena and there was an outdoor stage next to it. Okay. And it was like Bush and live and maybe Our Lady Peace. <laughs> it was like a total 90s rock radio fest yeah. out there. And I can't deny as much as I hate live, they were a lot of fun. <laughs> but that's the case a lot of the time, I think. So with your uh, bass player for hire, did you play with a Cybertronic Spree? No, no. I did make their website. Um, oh, yeah? Uh, I can't tell you who they are because they guard their anonymity like fiercely. But um, at their first, I don't know if they still do this, but for a while they were getting a different friend to appear on stage as Weird Al Yankovic with them. Okay. And at their very first show, I was, I was their first Weird Al. Um, which was uh, super fun to be a part of. Uh, the reason is that they play that 80s Transformers soundtrack and there's a Weird Al song on it. Oh, so yeah. they sing everything as Transformers and then they bring on a human Weird Al to do his song. <laughs> I wish I was in the Cybertronic spree. Um, did you see the, their like Kickstarter they did that got them like over a hundred thousand bucks? No, what was that? <laughs> they wanted $15,000 to make an album. And people gave them almost, I think it was like 140K that they got. But they didn't crank up their album budget. But what they did do is roll all that money into production. So, and oh. like fund a tour. They were going to go on a huge tour this summer and they couldn't. Anyway, the reason I bring this up is that right before this Kickstarter, they were going to play a Gathering of the Juggalos. Oh my God. And they, they asked me if I would go down there as like their tour manager and merch person. Yeah. And um, we couldn't make the money work for me. So I didn't go. Uh, and then right after this, they get this massive windfall. So if they ever ask me again, I know they can afford to pay. They me. ended up playing that, that festival. <laughs> they did. Yeah. Uh, last, last summer. But yeah, my only actual involvement with that band is I made their website. Um, and well, their manager, Sean, is one of my oldest and best friends, which is how I got to make their website. <laughs> you know what the uh, Mellagrove guys, at some parts of the movie, you say that kind of, you know, you guys do your own thing. You didn't really fit into a scene, per se, as your career went, went on. Like, you kind of did your own thing. You didn't really fall into the emo scene or the indie scene you just kind of stuck to your own style yeah i would say that's an accurate um statement and you think that kind of helped sort of longevity just sticking to what you guys wanted to do instead of jumping on a trend um in a sense yeah because like as it, it's an unfortunate reality of of um that line of work where often um, your, your longevity is just decided by 
the public, which is just this nebulous, undefinable, ever-shifting thing. And if in like the popular imagination, you are a, an example of a certain style, and then that style falls out of favor, you kind of get dragged down with it. And um, this wasn't anything really intentional on our part. I think a lot of, I think a lot of music scenes can emerge in an organic social way. Like yeah. um, in any city, it probably uh, on some level centers around like the art school that's in that city. Like even oh. in Mississauga, there's an arts high school, uh, Kothra, and mm -hmm. like the live music, the teenage music scene there is like, if you want to see the best bands, find out who the bands are from Kothra and they all know each other and they all put on shows together. And that, that's definitely what I grew up around and, and was always re really impressed by. And so anyways, um, where am I going with this? I might not be approaching a coherent point at all, but there were bands that we knew that we thought were great. And, but in terms of their presence in, uh, you know, the press, yeah. maybe how, how they were positioned either intentionally or how it was done to them, when those sort of scenes or styles started to come apart, those bands found themselves not really being able to get booked anywhere. Okay. Um, even though they were great, I think people would start, it just kind of became a thing where it was a safe bet that they were now unfashionable and nobody would want to see them. Hmm. Um, which is really too bad. And well, I think with us, I think the reason I brought up this kind of social thing is because we were Mississauga boys trying to play shows in Toronto because we lived in Mississauga. We didn't know anybody in Toronto. So right. um, it wasn't a thing where we weren't, we weren't part of the sort of uh, other facet of music where you go where the musicians are hanging out and, you know, hang out. Um, we weren't making those kinds of social connections. Um, we kind of had to exist outside of it. And I was the first one to move into Toronto, uh, but even then I was 23. Yeah. Um, I think that's just kind of the way it, it shook out. Uh, and like, we took so long to write songs and record albums anyway, that um, if, like, I mean, obviously there are conscious trend following bands, but if we had been one of them, by the time our trend following album came out, right. the trend would be long gone and we would look like idiots. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we were just trying to write music that sounded good to us. There was nothing, we might be influenced by things that were current, sort of organically, but we never, we would never sit down and, and kind of be like, okay, this, this is what's hot right now, so let's do this. Right. Um, that kind of conversation, I would think, never happened once. Are the other guys playing in other groups as well currently, or before the lockdowns? Um, yeah, yeah. Brian and Darcy have a uh, have a band together. Um, they uh, they actually just recently put their album on Spotify. Uh, that's called Quite Nice, and I know they're working on another album. Anytime I talk to either of them, it's not really about that. So I don't know what the status of it is. Okay. Um, I know Jay's been writing 
uh, I don't want to speak for other people, but I think Jay's always been more interested in writing and recording than he has been in, in performing. So okay. that doesn't really lend itself to playing in bands uh, so much. So I know he's been active, but, oh, you know, and he's, he's been working on, um, uh, speaking of Jay in the studio, he's been mixing um, a friend's record and I actually just heard his work. It sounds awesome. Jay mixed the last Melgrove album all by himself. Oh yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's my favorite sounding record we've made. Um, and I was really skeptical of this in advance because in my careful, like I was being careful and kind of being like, well, you're like a new, you're a new person at this. So like, wouldn't it be better to have like an experienced pro? But what ended up happening is he cared so much because this is his baby yeah. that he relentlessly worked until it was perfect. <laughs> and it's, and I got it. It's, I mean, I don't, I always kind of scoff when bands call their own albums awesome, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I do really love the sound of that one. And is that what the, allows me the 2014 to. one? Yeah, it's got like a purple cover. Okay. Yeah, so he he's been doing a bit of that work lately. Um and I a band I play with, we talked with him a, I think there was a little bit of talk of him recording us, but we ended up just serendipitously going another way. Okay. But uh, yeah, and as for me, I mean, I was playing in a live karaoke band for a little over 2 years. That was really busy. It was like 3 to 5 gigs a week and it was a 4-hour gig. Um, like wow. a four hour set on stage so that really got my chops up while wearing me down in other ways <laughs> um and yeah other than rich Coin, i have like a garage garage rock band called max that's with if you're familiar with the band's tokyo police club and yeah Romantics, it's it's with the singer and drummer of those two bands is that uh, M- max max M-A-X, yeah. Okay. We're just finishing up an album and trying to figure out what to do with it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've, I'm kind of just, sorry, I've been talking your ear off without really approaching a point in any way. Um, uh, I, I love it. Keep going. I'm, <laughs> I'm just kind of around and, uh, and um, well, it sucks that I can't play with anyone uh, these days, but um I had a bunch of rich O'Coin stuff fall fall through that was going to happen this summer down in the States, but it's given me more time to practice his new material because we were going to play his, his upcoming record. I'd say in terms of the timing, the only other unfortunate thing is I had this band called uh, Bankruptcy and we, we had finished an album and we were sitting on it for a while, just kind of hemming and hawing about how to put it out. We just kind of said, screw it, and put it online. And then in one day, this this record label contacted us being like, whoa, we want to put this out on vinyl. Uh, so we deleted it from like Spotify and Bandcamp yeah. <laughs> to, to give it time to get pressed. It came out in the fall. We didn't really have time to play shows, and we were going to start uh, this summer. And <laughs> now we can't. Huh. Which is too bad. So, I mean, it's too bad for that label who spent all that money pressing records for us. Um, I really want to get out there and make it happen. Uh, who else plays in bankruptcy? Anyone else that's in other bands? 
Uh, yeah, you know the band uh, Thrush Hermit? Yeah, it's yeah. like Joel Plaskett's original band. So the other lead singer of Thrush Hermit, Rob Benby, uh, Bankruptcy is kind of mostly his pro project in the sense that he writes and sings the most. Um, and he was also in a band called The Deers when he lived in Montreal for years. And The Deers drummer, Jeff Luciani, uh, plays with us. Nice. Um, and the other guitarist is Thrush Hermit's old touring guitar tech, uh, Wayne McPherson, who is one of the best guitarists I've ever played with. Uh, and he makes it look so easy, you assume he's doing something easy and lazy. But uh, huh. no, he's just super awesome and natural. <laughs> Any other kind of favorite band you're listening to right now? Listening to... Um, uh, it's tough. Uh, like, I I played live karaoke just up until the fall, and it, and it kind of screwed with my taste in music in the sense that there were so many songs to keep track of and to remember how to play that I was constantly just listening to our playlist, which was over 400 songs. Wow. Because wow. it, it's karaoke. Like, you don't go in with a plan. The next person who signs up, you get their card and you find out what song you have to play next right when you've got to play it. So you better remember how to play Killing in the Name or whatever, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so it really messed with my taste because I started, I started getting really into stuff that I previously dismissed. Like if I thought there was like a clever, something clever going on in terms of like the, how I would have to play the bass. And then when I got out of that, I just stopped listening to music altogether for a while. But, oh. well, lately I've been more into the inbreds. Uh, and I've been, I feel like I finally have the ear to work out these complex bass chords. Uh, so I've been having a lot of fun transcribing uh, inbred songs. Um, but uh, I got this fun 70s synth record called Plantasia. Okay. Uh, for Christmas that I'd actually never heard of, but it's um, it was sold in some plant shop in LA in the 70s uh, and got reissued like last year. But it, the idea is that it's scientifically engineered to make your plants happier, which is total garbage. It's just some synth nerd like getting stoned and, and having fun with his synths. It's called Fantasia? But, Plantasia. Oh, I thought like, like a Disney movie, Plantasia. No, no, Plantasia. It's it's hilarious and super fun to listen to and really super cheesy. <laughs> um, I've been like, I've been really, uh, I'm, I really enjoy that Neil Young has been dipping into his archival stuff and just like releasing like really nice recordings of shows from like the 70s and 60s. Okay and uh full albums he recorded and then decided not to put out in like 1974 but then last month he was just like you know what let's put that out <laughs> so like that's been really fun like to be spotifying that stuff i last maybe two months ago i listened to uh enter the wu-tang for the first time yeah <laughs> and i got I couldn't stop listening to that. Um, 
well, for like three days. And uh, I work from home because uh, of COVID. Uh, other than music stuff, I work as a web developer now. So okay. I've just been, uh, just I was just repeating uh, that record for like three days. They had this weird like million dollar album. Do you remember that a couple years ago? Yeah, like Martin. Like one copy of it. On it. Yeah. That was like the weirdest thing. Yeah, and then the guy who bought it didn't share it. Because I think everybody was hoping that some awesome millionaire would buy it and then just stick it online for free. <laughs> yeah. Um, How about a, like uh, your movie's awesome. Do you like any other movies like uh, concert film music documentaries? I've got a few favorites. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's one called Last Days Here. And that's about this singer. Oh, God, what's his name? I can't remember the name of the guy, but his band was called Pentagram. And uh, they were this promising, young, very Sabbath-sounding metal band in the early 70s um, that just never quite made it big. But this guy just kept... He just kept on trying. Uh, and at the time that this movie's being made, he's in his 70s. He's still, or he's in his 60s. He still lives with his parents who are in their 80s in their basement. And he's got a lot of like addiction problems. Okay. And it's pretty, it's pretty harrowing, but he's still like, like think of people, you know, who've, you know, kept trying for a little too long. Right. And then extend it over an entire lifetime into old age. Okay. That's what this movie shows. Uh, it's really interesting. It's pretty harrowing because he like, he's like on the verge of death while they're making this movie uh, for part of it. But um, right. I, really, I really like the Anvil documentary, of course. Um, there is a concert film I love. It's Canadian. It's called um, This Is What 110% Smells Like. Okay, and it's about B. A. Johnston. If if you're familiar with B. A. Johnston, um, it was shot in like 2007, I think. But this is someone who's pretty much lived on tour in Canada almost constantly since I'd say around 2004 or five. Okay, um, just this uh, one-man show. Uh, there's a great Globe and Mail article calling him the new Stomp and Tom. <laughs> he was in your movie too. He was in your movie, right? A couple clips. Oh, he is. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. we yeah. we encountered him in Sudbury once. I'm a big BA fan, but yeah, we played a show with him in Sudbury. We took a pay cut to play with BA Johnston in Sudbury instead of I can't even remember the show. Or like our booking agent Adam phoned me and was like, "Okay, on the end of this tour you're on, we can tack on one more show." And there's this thing at this campus pub. It pays this. Then Sudbury, I don't know, you know this guy, B.A. Johnston, and as soon as he said B.A. Johnston, I was like, we're doing that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, we drove him to Toronto from Sudbury so that he could take the bus to Hamilton. And yeah, He um, talks about that in the movie, I think. I think. He does, yeah, because we, um, we had just come off like a three-week tour, and, and I think we didn't want to take him to Union Station after we loaded out our gear, and we paid for him to get in a cab, and I think... Uh, he mentions what a jerk move that was. <laughs> and he's not wrong. He has a great concert film. Okay. Um, more recently, he made a TV show um, 
about Hamilton, the, the town for, I don't know, Bell Five or something, but that's a different thing because it's, it's not about his music at all. He's just like your Hamilton tour guide. So yeah, if I had to name, well, two, I'd say Last Days Here. Okay. This is what 110% smells like. And I know it's fictional, but I recently saw Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox oh, story. Yeah, yeah. And I loved it. And I, I felt like when Walk the Line came out and it was getting praise everywhere, I, I really like hated it. Okay. Um, and, I, and I felt kind of lonely about that. <laughs> um, and I feel like Walk Hard makes fun of all the stuff that I hated about Walk the Line when it came out. And I was like, yeah. oh, I'm not alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't really watch a lot of music movies. Uh, so it's hard for me to think of more. Um, uh, biographical ones done with actors, I tend not to really like. Um, like, I feel like there are certain traps they tend to fall in. Um, yeah. They're made they're made with the understanding that fans of this artist are going to be the ones who go to see it. So right. you need to sort of paint this person as this like super smart character who was always ahead of the trend and they hit a rough patch in the middle just because that's the story arc you got to create but right they come out of it stronger and you just end up with all these it just ends up annoying me (laughs) (laughs) well Uh, because you've been there right yeah yeah and like i guess that might be part of it i might get to i might be able to watch these things and be like oh well that would never happen that way but um did you guys play Malgrove last year? Uh, what did we do? Yeah, we played two songs at a Sloan tribute. Okay. Um, the band, the Golden Dogs, who are old friends of ours, they organized this thing. And I asked if I could go and join them on bass for a couple songs. And they came back being like, well, what if you just got the Malgroves together and all you just played together? And I, I were kind of thinking like, I doubt that that's going to happen, but I'll ask. And to my surprise, everybody was immediately into it. So that was a fun night. I mean, we, it was, there were a lot of people coming on and off stage all night and we were just one small part of it, but it felt really good to me. Nice. Um, Jose Contreras, he, he produced you guys? Yeah, he, he co-produced our last three albums. I like, um, in the movie, he's in a hot tub the whole time. Yep. <laughs> was that just, he just kind of decided that? I would assume it's definitely fitting with his personality. Um, at the time, he was living in a place that had a hot tub in, in the backyard. That was his backyard, you see him in. But, uh, okay. I mean, I think with a movie that's full of talking heads, you kind of got to make things interesting um, with your settings. <laughs> Especially when so much of it is like Jay Darcy and I in our rehearsal space with our heads against the walls. Right. Um, so definitely when I saw Jose in the tub, uh, I was very happy about that. <laughs> that was my interview with Michael Small, a wonderful musician from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. 
He's playing a number of groups now, and you might see him on the road. This has been Cambrio for CambrioMusic.com. Thanks so much for coming by. 